morning. I'm Rika, a member of Morland's Church. Today's reading is in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. So Acts chapter 6, starting from verse 1. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because the widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Paminus, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Thank you very much, Rika. Thank you, Andy. Let me add my welcome, and uh, let's, uh, let's pray and ask for God's help as we turn to this passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've spoken to us about the things that matter, and we pray that we might be eager to hear them and obey them. We pray that these words might change our thinking, might give us hope for the mission that you've given to us, and as we change and obey because of these words, you would bring great glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, in the context of the book of Acts so far, this passage can seem like something of an anti-climax. The story Luke has been telling is the story of the mission of Jesus going to the ends of the earth. And what a thrilling story it's been. We've had miraculous healings. We've had menacing rulers. We've had midnight prison breaks. We've had mass conversions. And now... Chapter 6, verse 1, with those words, in those days, uh, Luke takes us from all of that raw excitement of the coalface of the mission in the marketplace, and he brings us into a church meeting, a church business meeting, a church business meeting to sort out some grumbling about a meal roster. 
It's as if someone has suddenly switched the channels from the middle of line of duty to Gardener's World. Or if you prefer, or if you like Gardener's World, then it's as if we're watching this wonderful, gripping, Grand Prix, Formula One motor race with all the shenanigans going on on the track, and suddenly the cameras force us to leave the action and we're forced to look at the pit stop and pay attention to a tire change. Now, there is plenty we can learn here about the nuts and bolts of church leadership. This is really an account of organizational change. A problem is identified and brought to the senior leadership team of the church. The leaders listen carefully to the complaint and respond wisely. They gather the church together, they explain their thinking, they present a proposal for change to solve the problem, which involves the beginning of what we would call a team structure. The proposal is welcomed by the members of the church and put into action. So there's lots we can learn, but it does seem like a downward gear shift in contrast to the story Luke has been telling. But to see this passage in those terms, to see this passage as a kind of interruption to the action, or even as some have suggested, Luke's opportunity to include a few ideas about church order, such as the introduction of a class of leaders called deacons, would be a terrible mistake. I want to suggest that while this is indeed a church business meeting about a meal roster, it is the most important church business meeting ever. It's vitally important to the mission of Jesus and therefore to the good of humanity. Because at the heart of it is a principle we must grasp hold of as a church or we will die as a church. There is a principle we must grasp hold of as a church or we will die as a church. And if you're new to church or Christian thinking and just exploring this morning, then I'm so glad you're here too because nothing could be more relevant to you than that you hear from this passage that Jesus Christ wants to meet your deepest need, which is to find eternal salvation in him. Let me show you why this is the case. Two main concerns have been occupying Luke's attention so far. First is the spread of the gospel measured in numbers. So you think about it, how do you track the mission of Jesus Christ? This is what this book is about. The mission of Jesus Christ is to proclaim his lordship, his rule, to the ends of the earth. How do you measure the rule of Jesus? How do you measure the success of the mission? Because the world as we see it doesn't look like Jesus rules it in some ways. Well, through the book of Acts, Luke tracks the success of Jesus' mission by regularly reporting the numbers of those who become Christians, those who recognize Jesus as Lord. So I'm going to shout out some verse references. If you're taking notes, you can jot them down, look them up later, but don't worry if you don't get them all. In 115, there are 120 disciples. By 241, this has grown to 3,000. By 44, to 5,000 men. And then by 514, Luke seems to have lost count and just tells us more and more men and women believed the Lord and were added to their number. And from then on, he intersperses his account with more detailed growth summaries in which he kind of takes a step back from the action, 
to make sure we understand what is really happening. And interestingly, all of these growth summaries are placed after major events in the narrative. So after the dramatic conversion of Saul of Tarsus in 931, we get a growth summary. After the momentous conversion of Cornelius, the first gen uh, Gentile, in 1224, we get another one. We get another one after Paul's first missionary journey in 165, and then another one after the second and third journeys in 1920. And then right at the end of the book, after Paul has arrived in Rome, he's under arrest, but we're told he boldly preaches without hindrance in 2831. And so Luke has structured his whole story by telling us about numbers, numbers of people who are converted, who are saved, who are added to the church. So the pious idea that numbers don't matter, that you sometimes hear, is not biblical. They matter to Luke, and they matter to God. And the reason that numbers matter is because Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And every number that Luke reports is a lost person being saved from hell for eternity. Last week I was taking a run and uh, I went up to a couple of students on the canal towpath and started talking to them about their eternal destinies. It's not something I do very often, but the reason I did was because one of them was wearing a, a very striking jacket. And on the back of her jacket there was this massive kind of image of a fire and painted on the back in big red letters was the word hell. And I thought, well, there's an invitation if ever I saw one. And so I stopped and I said, do you mind if I ask why you've got the word hell on the back of your jacket? And she told me the reason, which was a little bit complicated. Basically, she thought it looked kind of cool. So I said, do you believe in hell? She said she didn't know much about it. I said, do you want me to tell you about it? Her friend looked like she would have preferred to jump in the canal at that point. <laughs> but the girl with the jacket said, no, go ahead. So I explained to her the reason I know hell exists and the reason I know hell is terrible is because when Jesus died on the cross, he was saving us from the hell that we deserve for our rejection of God. I said, clearly, this is not something to be trifled with. And she said, yes, I can think, I think I can agree. And I said, but it's a destiny that can be avoided by recognizing Jesus as Lord and receiving the forgiveness he offers. Have you ever thought about that? No, I haven't, but I will now. And I said in conclusion that, remember, you know, this is what we believe as Christians, that I need to remember to tell you. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. As canal side conversations go, it was quite a good one. But sometimes we Christians forget this, don't we? We forget the real predicament that people are in. That everybody you see on your run, everybody you see on the canal side, each one of the 15,000 students at the university, each one of the 60,000 in this city, face a terrible need, a terrible destiny, unless they hear the good news of Jesus. And we may forget, too, that it's only to the church that this 
has been entrusted. So numbers matter because nothing matters more in this world than people like that student turning to Christ because she and everybody else is facing an eternal destiny in hell or heaven with God or apart from God. So numbers matter. Luke's second major concern has been to show us that this gospel growth takes place in the face of a satanic counterattack and Satan puts obstacles in the way of the gospel at every point. How does he do it? Well, Satan has one goal and many strategies. One goal and many strategies. His one goal is to silence the word of God. If you think about it, this is the only way Satan can stop the mission. If it is true that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved, then if he can stop people hearing that gospel, then fewer people will be saved, which is his aim. So he has one goal, which is to silence the word of God. And whenever you see the word of God silenced, you know that Satan has been at work, but he has many strategies. And in the first part of his book, Luke shows us three. First, the one we saw last week in chapter four, which is the plain, brutal persecution that just crushes Christians and so silences them. Second, there is the internal corruption of the church, which is recorded in chapter 5, which we haven't looked at, and it's the account of Ananias and Sapphira. And their corruption, which in this case is to do with money, it could easily have been about sex or power, but in this case their corruption nullifies the church's witness. So plain ordinary persecution, internal corruption, two of Satan's strategies to nullify the word. But now we see a third strategy in the satanic counterattack, and it's much more subtle and therefore much more deadly, and it's the distraction. It's the strategy of distraction from gospel ministry itself, and this is what this passage is about. Well, in the light of that, isn't it significant to now look at verse 7 and see how Luke concludes this church business meeting? And you'll see that he concludes it with one of his detailed growth summaries. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Clearly, Luke saw the problem here as a serious threat to church growth, a serious threat to numbers of people being saved. Clearly, the decisions made in this meeting overcame the threat so that the mission could proceed unhindered. And if you can picture it like a kind of a steeplechase where the horses are the word of God galloping over the world and there's an obstacle and an obstacle one after another, here is the next obstacle and the word has hurdled the obstacle and can continue on. And therefore I take it that this passage has lessons to teach us that are vitally important for the growth of the church, for the survival of the church. I take it that if we ignore the lesson from Acts 6, we will in time die as a church. The success of the mission of Jesus depends upon this church business meeting about a meal roster. 
So let's look at it more closely. First point you'll see on the sheet is the crisis that threatened the church, verse 1. Where we read that in those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. First thing to notice is that the problem is caused by the very growth that Luke has been celebrating in those days when the number of disciples were increasing. This is significant, and I don't want to skim over this point. See, churches and church leaders spend a lot of time talking about growth, don't we? We've just been talking about it this morning. We've been praying about it. Talking about all those activities that we could hold in this building. Talking about inviting people, praying for them. The startup course, the life course, the guest service in a few weeks' time. But what if God answered those prayers and he brought significant numerical growth to us? Well, what if the church was suddenly full of new people? And a greater diversity of people as well. See, what we forget sometimes is that that growth we long for actually changes the church. It brings with it new complexities and challenges. See, a 50-person church, and some of us can remember when this was a 50-person church, is very different to a 250-person church. It's not just a, a smaller version of the same thing. It's a completely different animal. In a 50-person church, you can know everybody by name. You can have a direct kind of relationship with the leaders. Everybody who's new just kind of slots in very easily. You can run everything centrally. You can just say, look, there's a meal roster. Who wants to do it? You can run everything by volunteers. In a 250-person church, you, you can't do any of those things. Not so easily. You have to organize things differently. And I think the first lesson from this passage, actually... Well, it's not the main one, but it's worth noting is that leaders have to be aware that as churches grow, they change, and those changes can become barriers to growth unless they're dealt with. And so part of the job of the church leader is to think carefully about organization and to manage that change so that the church can continue to grow. Otherwise, the church will plateau and then decline. Now, this is something that not many, church, not many of us church leaders feel qualified for, and certainly it's not something we love thinking about. It's very easy to super-spiritualize the work of the church leader and think that business and management and strategy are something we can leave to other people. We're just going to get on to praying and preaching. Or as a friend of mine says, I'm just going to retreat into my pastor's cave and surround myself with books. But this is part of the job. This is what we're thinking about as elders all the time. This is why the pastor, teacher, and elder in the New Testament is also given the job of overseer, which means a manager, a manager of the household, 1 Timothy 3, for example. And so if you just think back to our life as a church over the last few years, we've had to make some big, bold decisions in order to manage change and provide for future growth. An example is splitting meetings into two a few years ago. Another example is the recent introduction of our team's structure to get everything off rosters and things like that. And our Building for Growth project is another example of this. It's a growth strategy. It's fine to meet in a school or even in homes when you're at 50, but when you reach a certain size, you need buildings to work around the clock. It's change, reorganization, 
It's part of the growth. Now, this particular growth pain was very serious because it threatened both the unity and the witness of the church. Notice verse 1. It's a complaint, literally a grumbling, a murmuring. It's a very negative word in the Bible. Having said that, there is a reason for the complaint. You may remember back in 245, when we were looking at that kind of honeymoon period of the church, that Luke told us all the believers had everything in common and gave to everyone as they had need. And in 434, he told us that there were no needy persons among them. It was a wonderful time. It was a wonderful picture of a united, generous church. But now, look at verse 1. Some people from a more diverse background have joined the church. You've got these two kind of linguistic, ethnic groups of Jews, the Greek speakers and the Hebraic speakers. And somehow, in the messiness of welcoming these new people into church, the Greek widows have been overlooked. There's been a failure. There's been a breakdown of organization. And they are now needy. And in the Bible, this is very serious because widows are among the four vulnerable groups God's people are to be especially concerned about, the other three being orphans, foreigners, and the poor. And so the very success of the mission in bringing people from my diverse backgrounds together in one church, the very success of church growth has caused a problem, has caused tension to arise. See, if the church had stayed small, if it had stayed in that Acts 2.42 situation with everybody just, just loving it and bringing all their food and sharing meals and so on, if they'd just stayed small and kept looking inwards, enjoying the buzz of church and the fellowship of church, if they'd never done that business of looking outwards, this problem would never have arisen. But now it has arisen. And the very growth that they've looked forward to has now posed a danger to the unity and witness of the church. The church that claimed to be united under Christ was now open to the ugly accusation of what we would call institutional racism. The church that claimed to have no needy persons among them actually had widows who were in danger of starving. It's a very serious crisis, isn't it? It's a critical moment for the apostles to lead this church through the complexity caused by growth. What are they going to do? Well, let's look carefully, secondly, at the decision that they made. Look again at verse 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. There is the key decision and the heart of the whole passage. There in verse 2, this is the key lesson that Luke wants us to grasp. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. Can I just ask you to let those words sink in it would not be right. Those are shocking words, given the seriousness of the situation. I mean, some of the members of the church are starving. 
there is a, a, a little wedge of racism opening up. But the apostles insist it would not be right, it would be wrong to allow themselves to be distracted by that social need. In God's eyes, they would actually be sinning. They would be failing as leaders. They would be working against the mission of Jesus. They would be falling into the trap of Satan to silence the word. There's a fundamental principle here, but it's quite shocking the first time you see it. The principle is that not all things are of equal importance. That the good can become the enemy of the best. That what matters to God is sometimes different to what matters to us. Well, we'll see in a moment where this idea came from. But first, I want to unpack the decision a little, little more carefully. And if you're taking notes, I've got five sub-points. First, there is no hint that the apostles viewed waiting at tables as below their dignity or somehow inferior to their work. The phrase translated in our version, daily distribution, in verse 1, is literally the daily ministry, and that word appears three times in the passage. The phrase translated wait on tables, which I think is a, a bit of an unfortunate translation, is literally the word minister, serve on tables. It's the very same word that is used, thirdly, of the ministry of word and prayer in verse 4. In other words, Luke is careful to use the word ministry equally of the men who are given responsibility for the food organization and the apostles. The word in the Greek is the word from which we get the word deacon, to serve, to minister. So all of them, both the food roster guys and the word guys, they're all deacons, they're all servants. That's the first point. There's no sense that the apostles think this is kind of beneath them. Which is why, secondly, the men chosen for this administrative role have such a high standard of godliness and reputation. Verse 3, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. There's no sense that this is the B team, that there are some ministries in church that you can just kind of, you can just bung them towards these lesser group of people, that any old person who's just kind of rocked up can do these things. Now, these are first-rate disciples, and they're given an important job. They're going to have to have the humility to serve in this way. They're going to have to understand why they are doing it. And that requires great spiritual maturity, doesn't it? Not to be sort of lazy about a thing like this. Not to take shortcuts about a thing like this. It takes great spiritual maturity, actually, to serve in a team like this. In fact, some of these men are going to turn up in the narrative that follows as real spiritual heavyweights. Stephen, who preaches the longest sermon in the book and gets killed for it. Philip, who we're going to see next week, takes a part in spreading the gospel to Africa. And it's this team of godly men who are entrusted with the meal roster. Well, we've got equivalents in our church, haven't we? We've got a welcome team. We have an AV team who are making the, uh, the thing work right now. We've got setup teams, cleaning teams, 
People who mow the grass outside, have you noticed it on the way in? It looks great, doesn't it? We've got hospitality teams, haven't been doing much lately, but hopefully they'll start soon. We've got children's groups, media teams, all sorts of people doing all sorts of practical ministries. And we've got people preparing sermons and Bible studies and so on. And Luke says we're all servants of Jesus Christ. And there's a very high standard demanded. And of course that goes for team members too. Just putting together a team structure doesn't accomplish anything. Teams have to be made up of godly members who know what it means to serve. And this is why we don't just bung people into a team on their first week. Even if it just involves moving furniture around. You have to be committed to the mission. You have to understand the why. And that's why generally you want people to commit to partnership before we invite them to be on a team. See, there is a godly and an ungodly way of mowing the lawn. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. There's obviously a, a, a good way of mowing the lawn and a bad way of mowing the lawn. You can set the blades too high and, and so forth. But there's also a godly and ungodly way of mowing the lawn. You can do it in a kind of resentful way. You can do it in a kind of a half-hearted way. You can do it in a lazy way. You can do it in a proud way. Or, if you're full of wisdom and the Spirit, you can do it in the reverse of all those things, for the sake of others, for the glory of Jesus Christ. Third, there is no hint that by delegating the care of the widows to others, the apostles see this as unimportant and all they want to do is sit in their studies reading and praying. It's precisely because they do want the widows to be cared for without neglecting the word of God that they actually put in the creative energy to make it happen. They don't ignore the problem and hope it goes away. They don't super-spiritualize the problem and just call a prayer meeting or teach about generosity again or something like that. I think it's important that we say this, isn't it? So I think we as a church are good on the whole at protecting the time of those set apart for teaching. As someone said to me recently, he was helping me with a, a, a practical matter. He said, look, I'll sort this out because I want to hear a decent sermon on Sunday morning. It's a good way of thinking, isn't it? It's not that I don't like sorting out the practical matter. It's, well, I was going to say it's not that I'm not capable of doing it, but it is that I'm not capable of doing it in that particular case. But that's not the reason. It's not just because me and Nathan and Joe and the others want to go and sit in our studies reading great books. It's because Jesus has told us to feed the sheep. And that takes time and graft and preparation. Fourth, notice that the social care that they provide is focused in its scope on the widows within the church family. We'll come back to this point a little bit later on, but it's important not to make the mistake of drawing from this passage the implication that churches are to set up mercy ministries like this for everybody. There's a whole lot of stuff we could say about this. You can ask a question about it. We can come back to it another time. But they don't go and run a soup kitchen for the whole of Jerusalem. They provide for the needy among the disciples. And there's lots of examples of this in the Bible. As Paul puts it in Galatians 6.10, do good to all people as we have the opportunity, 
especially those who belong to the family of believers. So fifthly and finally, and sorry if you've run out of space on the notes, what is the decision they make? What is it that they do? Well, they reorganize the church by giving responsibility to others and empowering them to do it. People sometimes use the word delegation. I want to avoid that word a little bit because it's, it's a little bit more than delegation. It's handing over responsibility and giving them the power to do it. See, the apostles recognize something very important here, don't they? They recognize that they are limited, not just because only 12 of them in this church is now 5,000, but they're limited as human beings as well. And that God has provided all the gifts that they need within the church family. And so rather than kind of keeping that responsibility to themselves, they put a specialist team together and they hand over responsibility to them. And I think this is an important principle that we're going to see more and more as the New Testament goes on, that New Testament churches, healthy New Testament churches, are run by teamwork. Whether you call it that or not, and I looked it up and the word team isn't in the Bible, apart from one reference to a team of oxen. So please don't come up to me at the end and say, look, this is, this is just modern kind of language. No, the, the word isn't there. I realize that, but the idea is there all over the New Testament. Look at the end of Romans 16, for example. Notice what a team player Paul is. We sometimes imagine somebody like Paul as this kind of hero, lone ranger, missionary. He was always working with other people. Barnabas, Timothy, and then these great lists of men and women, brothers and sisters who he thanks and prays for, gives credit to in places like Romans 16. In Ephesians 4, you get another example where Paul says that he expects every single member of the church to be a minister of the church. Everybody. So that the whole church can grow. Or 1 Corinthians 14, where every member of the church is to take responsibility for building up every other member. This is, this is why we, we want people in this building. We don't want people stuck at home on the live stream anymore. Because you can't do that every member ministry while you're sitting on your sofa. Not as well, anyway. Or he talks about in Romans 12, where he says everybody has been given gifts, and we are to use those gifts to grow the whole church. Well, we've tried to employ this wisdom in our church by restructuring around teams. Because we recognize that the New Testament wants every member to be fully involved in church. We want to be servants, not consumers. To use an image that we use occasionally, we want to be crew, not passengers. We want to be players on the pitch, not spectators in the stand. We want all of us to be maximizing our gospel ministry. Well, what does that look like practically? Well, I spent an hour with the team leaders uh, the other week brainstorming this and asking the question, what would it look like if this kind of idea really got embedded into our church culture deeply? Here are some of the things that they said they would expect to see. They would expect to see church members lying awake at night thinking creatively about how to improve their area of ministry. So if you're the lawn guy, sorry if I keep mentioning, the, the, it's just a good example, isn't it? John's lying awake at night. 
I wonder if we can afford a better lawnmower. I wonder what the best mix of ryegrass is for that bit of shady lawn there. Those kinds of things. You're lying awake at night, aren't you? Creatively thinking about it. Secondly, creative ideas would be put forward by the church membership. It's not just a kind of a a top-down thing. It's a bottom-up thing. Thirdly, new things would start. New ministries and ideas and initiatives would come from the members of the church, not just the leadership and the staff team. Fourthly, everyone would feel they had a significant contribution to make. There would be nobody sitting here thinking, I've got nothing to offer. Nobody. Fifthly, or sixthly, whatever we're up to, there'll be less movement of people away. Because I think sometimes people leave churches and move on to other opportunities because they they don't feel that they are crucially important. And we often say, don't we, no one's indispensable, but actually everybody's indispensable. Staff and elders would be freed up for more word ministry. There'd be less chance of burning out. And then everybody would be using their gifts and growing in discipleship as they serve. It's a great list, isn't it? It's a great aspiration. Healthy churches are run by teamwork. And what's the result of all this? Well, in Acts 6, the result of all this, well, there are two, not just one, there are two results. Firstly, the widows get cared for. The social need is met. It's not neglected. The administrative problem is solved. The threat to church unity is removed. The widows get fed. But the second result is that the priority of the word is preserved. And that brings us to the third point, the priority that led to growth. I think we can see now that actually this is one of the climaxes of the book so far. And verse 7 is a deliberate sort of summary statement to show us how powerful it is. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Luke loves his repetition. and He gives us three different expressions to make sure we understand the growth that he's interested in has been achieved. First, he says the word of God spread. Of course it did. The word of God is a spreading thing. Remember the uh, parable of the sower that Jesus told, that Luke would have been familiar with, that Luke wrote about. That seed that gets sown and multiplies. Well, the word of God spread. It can't spread if it's neglected. Or if those tasked with sowing the seed are so taken up and distracted by other things. Secondly, this resulted, again, in large numbers of disciples. There it is, Luke's favorite word. Each number, remember, representing a flesh and blood human being who will spend eternity either in hell under God's wrath or in heaven enjoying God's presence. And thirdly, I think with a tone of amazement, he adds the detail that even a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Those priests who were the ones at the forefront of opposing Jesus and putting him to death. And they became obedient to the faith. That is, they went on and they persevered in the Christian life. And so I think Luke could not be clearer, could he, that this gospel growth 
is a direct result of the decision the apostles made to prioritize word ministry through creating a team structure. See, look back at 542. There the apostles never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. But here comes another barrier, and the word has leapt over it with great wisdom, so it can continue on its way. This is vital biblical wisdom. Well, let me conclude with three implications. First, we see a danger to avoid. A danger to avoid. The danger here was not the brutal persecution of chapter 4, and it's not the insidious internal corruption of chapter 5. It is the more subtle danger of distraction of being distracted by a good and worthy and right thing, which is why it's so dangerous. See, who could possibly believe that feeding starving widows would be a bad thing for the apostles to sort out for themselves? Well, only those have been trained by Jesus Christ, because no one was clearer than Jesus on this. Remember, in Mark chapter 1, Everyone comes to Jesus for healing. And what does he say? He says, let's go somewhere else so I can preach the good news. That is why I have come. When Jesus came into the world, he came to establish a kingdom, not to set up a national health service. Remember the paralyzed man in Luke 5. Massive physical need, obvious, desperate physical need. And what does Jesus say? Son, your sins are forgiven. This is why we looked at that passage in the funeral of a young mum this week. Because we wanted people to know, and she wanted people to know, that forgiveness is even more precious than healing. And faith is more important than life. This is what Jesus taught. See, Luke is telling us this so clearly because he knows that this will always be a temptation for us. If Satan cannot silence Christianity by persecution, if he cannot sully our witness by moral compromise, he will try and distract us from the main thing. So gradually, slowly, year by year, decade by decade, generation by generation, we just lose sight of the mission and we lose confidence in the mission to proclaim Christ to the world and we end up doing something else. The good becomes the enemy of the best. See, I wonder if you could imagine this building 150 years ago. Seats 570 in pews. There were a further 650 children in the Sunday school. What happened? What happened to all those people? Well, I don't know the answer for this congregation. And it could be a complex story as history and so on has changed. But... What happened to many congregations in this country is that they lost focus on the gospel and started pursuing an entirely social agenda. And we need to see this morning that we could go the same way too if we are not careful. It is only where the true gospel is preached that Jesus is really building his church. Lose that and we cease to be a church we become an empty shell and die. There is a danger to avoid. 
Secondly, more positively, there is a priority to protect. There is a priority to protect. Because the gospel is the greatest and most loving care you can give to anybody because only the gospel provides health and wealth and prosperity for all eternity. I was reflecting on this week when I went for my COVID jab. I was given Pfizer. She said, are you happy with Pfizer? I was thinking, do I have a choice? I said, yes, I'm very happy. No side effects, thoroughly recommended. I think I was young enough to qualify. Anyway, I went for my jab. And if you've been, you may know that after the injection, they tell you to sit down for 15 minutes. Now, I didn't know this. I wasn't prepared with a book or anything. And so I just sat there for 15 minutes. It's actually a really lovely thing to be given 15 minutes of, of time just to sit. Now, I assume the reason they do that is because they're, they're kind of expecting a few people to fall off their chair. And so I was looking around at the rows of people just expecting a couple of people to kind of fall off their chair and need medical attention, but nobody did. And after 15 minutes, people's sort of time was up and everybody shuffled off back to the car park. And after 15 minutes, I did the same. And it occurred to me what a brilliant picture of life that was. It's a great thing, isn't it, to have a vaccine? I'm so thankful for the vaccine. But all it's done is prolonged the inevitable moment of departure. Life is short, isn't it? Some of us are going to die quite soon. I haven't got my eye on anybody in particular, but some of us haven't got long. Some of us have got a long time, but it's just 15 minutes in the scheme of things. And we can vaccinate all we like. We can provide all the health care we want. We can keep ourselves safe from viruses. We can wear face masks. We can protect ourselves and coddle ourselves. And of course, there is so much of that that is right and good and proper. But only the gospel can vaccinate a person against death itself. It is only the word of the gospel that can change people's eternal destinies. And we must remember this. There is a danger to avoid. There is a priority to protect. Thirdly, there is an opportunity, therefore, to pursue. See, really, this is a passage with just one single lesson that Luke wants us to grasp, and it's the priority of the ministry of the word. It's vital, then, that we as a church make bold decisions to maximize our gospel ministry. See, the world is a very needy place, and God cares greatly about the material needs of humanity. He cares greatly about our health cares greatly about starving widows. And yet he has not given to the church the task of sorting out the material needs of the world. That is not the mission. The mission is to proclaim the gospel. And strangely enough, and wonderfully, it is only that gospel that transforms society. See, think about it like this. In the coming financial year, 
the Chancellor is giving the police an extra 15 billion pounds to fight crime. Isn't that great? Not said sarcastically, isn't that great? 15 billion pounds to fight crime. I want crime to be fought. Every week I get an email from the police telling me that the thieves are about to rob my shed. Every week. The Chancellor is giving 15 billion pounds to stop people robbing my shed. That is great. But imagine if he spent just 1% of that, 15 million pounds, on training gospel workers. I want to suggest that it would achieve far more than the 15 billion pounds he's throwing at crime. Because the gospel transforms. Someone becomes a believer and suddenly families are strengthened. Less divorce, less social breakdown. All those children in, in families of divorced parents, scientifically proven, I'm from a divorced family myself, so I'm not criticizing anybody's life situation, but all the research tells you that children of married families have better outcomes in every measurable area of life, grow up to be better citizens, paying their taxes, less crime, less alcohol abuse, and so on and so on. You preach the gospel, and society is transformed. But you don't try and transform society without the gospel. Now, I know this is crazy. I know this is naive. The idea of the Chancellor spending 15 million pounds on gospel workers, it's a crazy idea, isn't it? Of course it is. But it's true, and we should think like this if we take this passage seriously. Only the gospel can transform. More importantly, only the gospel can save people for eternity. Now, unfortunately, I doubt that Rishi is going to spend even a pound on training gospel workers. And so it's down to us. It's down to us as a local church. Down to us each as individuals to use whatever gifts and circumstances and opportunities that we've been given to pursue this, to maximize our opportunity, to be a team on mission for Jesus, so that the number of disciples can increase. The thing that only God can do by his word through the prayerful proclamation of the good news of Jesus. Well, let's pray that might be the case for our church. Let's have a moment to pray. Father, we pray that you'd forgive us when we forget these fundamental things. And we pray that you'd help each of us to be eager to pursue the priority of gospel ministry without distraction. That each of us might use our gifts to serve others so that gospel ministry is maximized for our church, for the glory of Jesus. 
Father, we realize this means different things for different people. For some at the younger end of the scale, it may mean thinking carefully about our career choices, considering set-apart ministry, testing the water with ministry training scheme and so on. We pray that you'd help them to use their gifts to maximize gospel ministry for the glory of Jesus. For most of us, it'll mean being wholeheartedly committed to our team ministry, knowing that part of the way we serve you is the way we serve in these practical areas so we can maximize our gospel output as a church. Please help every one of us to use our gifts wholeheartedly to serve others for the glory of Jesus. For most of us as partners this week, it will mean giving careful thought to our financial pledge for the Building for Growth Fund. So a greater number of people can hear the word in these buildings every day of the week. Please help us to use our gifts to serve others for the glory of Jesus. For those of us who've been set apart to teach and lead, it means protecting our time so we can provide careful Bible teaching week after week, so we can boldly and courageously proclaim the gospel. Please help us to use our gifts to serve others in order to maximize ministry for the whole church. And we pray for those among us who are not convinced followers of Jesus, that they will have heard this morning of the great gift of salvation, the most important thing, Salvation for eternity through trusting Christ who died on the cross. Please help them to be eager to receive this gift, to bow the knee to Jesus. And Heavenly Father, we pray in all of this that you'd be pleased to add to our number those who are being saved for the glory of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.